You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. I uh, just want to remind you again, um, I know we're, there's a ton of information that we're kind of chugging through. Um, I probably will come back and revisit this at some point in maybe a little longer form. Uh, six weeks is um, a really short time to try to get through, you know, 2,000 years of church history. And so we're really just kind of going to kind of hitting the high points. Uh, and even at that, there's a whole lot. And so we may revisit this at some point, but I'm hoping this is helpful. Uh, and like I said, at any time, if you want to raise your hand, if you have a question or want me to stop and try to clarify something, I'll do the very best that I can. I am by no means a church history expert, um, but uh, I, I, will, I will do my best, and I'm glad to say I don't know if I don't have the answer, and I will go and find it and get it back to you later, all right? So uh, we're going to jump a little bit forward today. We uh, left off last week looking at um, uh, some of the great teachers of the early church. We looked at Tertullian a, a bit. We looked at Origen. Um, we, uh, we talked about um, Clement of Alexandria and... Um, Irenaeus of Lyons. So these were some of the, the great uh, teachers in the, you know, after the age of the apostles. So we'd have been in the, the first, no, well, not the first, the second and third centuries AD is when these guys would have been. Um, and so these would have been what we call the, 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 the church fathers or, um, the, you know, just early teachers in the church. When, when, um, the organization and the structure, the hierarchy of the church began to be developed. We'll talk a little bit more about hierarchy maybe tonight, um, the good parts of it and kind of some of the negative aspects of that that it caused. And um, we talked a little bit about that and the rise of bishops, um, which would be kind of, you know, I mean, we still have bishops today, right? Where they're, they're people who have authority over a group of churches, and then each of those churches would have a pastor. So it's a way to kind of introduce some checks and balances. Um, and so these guys were some of the early thinkers in the church beginning to develop theology. I think we talked, uh, I mentioned last week, for those of you who are here, that Origen, uh, one of the teachers that we talked about was the first person to use the word Trinity, actually invented the word Trinity to, to describe uh, the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so some of these kind of ideas, some of these um, thoughts and um, you know, uh, concepts in theology were starting to, to come into being. And of course, this was all, you know, in line with the teaching of the apostles. What they were doing was trying to um, really develop a deeper understanding of the things that the apostles had taught, the nature of who Christ was, like how could he be 100% God and 100% man? These were the questions that they were, big, they were wrestling with and some of the same questions that we continue sometimes to wrestle with today. And so that should be an encouragement to us because much of these things, I mean, if we could describe God, if we could really wrap our brains around who he is, he wouldn't be God, right? If I could really understand God, he wouldn't be God. Because uh, if 
Yeah, because he would be limited to my capacity, which would be a pretty sad state for God to be in, right? Uh, and so the early Christians were wrestling with those same kinds of things. Those, And so anyway, now we're going to jump forward a little bit into the the fourth century AD, to be specific, uh, the year 312 uh, or thereabouts, right? Um, so if you go to Rome today, if any of you have ever been to Rome or you get a chance to visit Rome, if you go to the Colosseum, uh, just down the street from the Colosseum, there's an arch uh, that has these battle scenes carved into it, and that's the triumphal arch of Constantine. Uh, Constantine was the first Roman emperor to be a Christian. Uh, and so, but this arch was built in AD 312 uh, it, to celebrate Constantine's victory against Maxentius, who was his rival for the throne. So at this time in the Roman Empire, uh, Rome had been split into two empires, essentially, because uh well, the geographic scope of the Roman Empire was so huge that it was really hard to administrate and to, um, well, to govern. And so what they had done is they had split Rome into the an eastern and western empires. And then uh, in each of those, the east and the west, there were uh, kind of, there was a hierarchy of leadership. At the top of that would have been the Augustus, right? Uh, like the Bible, you know, in, it came to pass in those days, you know, Caesar Augustus, right? Said that all the world should be taxed. So Augustus was a title. It wasn't a name. And it was the, the highest ranking official in that area. So the Augustus was the highest ranking. That was the emperor of the East or the West. Uh, and then under them would be Caesars, which we might call the, the vice emperor, right? And so uh, Constantine's father had been the Augustus of the Western Empire, the Western part of the Roman Empire. Um, and when his father died, Constantine, who was a young man at that time, his soldiers, he was leading um, a... Um, an army of Romans soldiers, actually in England at this point, he was declared to be emperor in in York, England, uh, and then. But there was a rival, uh, Maxentius, who was in Italy. He also had declared himself to be emperor, and so now we got a problem, right? So Constantine takes his army and begins to march toward Rome, um, and he's really outnumbered. Um, and so uh, the reason that all of this is significant in church history is, number one, because Constantine was the first emperor in, in Roman history to be a Christian. Uh, but then, two, so what happens? Uh, Constantine takes his army, begins marching toward Rome. Uh, they are vastly outnumbered. Um, and really, there's... there's there's not much hope of Constantine's victory. No one really thinks Constantine has much of a chance. Um, and yet, uh, and we don't know if this, uh, so uh, let me say this, Constantine is really good uh, at propaganda. 
He's a really good storyteller. He really knows how to capture the hearts of the people. So whether or not this actually happened in the way that Constantine told the story or not, we don't know. Uh, in fact, this story comes down to us from a, a historian, and I'm not going to remember his name, and I don't have it in my notes. Uh, but this, this story comes down to us from a, a historian who was a really big fan of Constantine, like he really liked. He's a fanboy, big time, right? And so, like, he never writes a single negative thing about Constantine. And so, uh, but anyway, so the story as it comes to us is this, that on the night before, Constantine and his armies invade Rome, cross the Tiber River um, into Rome, um, Constantine has a vision of the cross and uh, says that in this vision, he heard a voice from heaven that said, in this sign, you will conquer. And so then he had all of his soldiers put crosses on their shields and they marched into battle under the sign of the cross and they defeated Maxentius and his forces. And so on the backside of that arch that I was describing is uh, a, a frieze showing Maxentius and his troops falling from the Milvian Bridge into the Tiber River, being defeated by the forces of Constantine. And so this is significant because Constantine, like I said, whether it happened as he told the story or whether it just became really good uh, PR later on, uh, he said that he, and, and just side note, here's another interesting thing about Constantine. So uh, he's really good at the PR thing. And then... Um, so there was tradition at this time that said uh, that once you were baptized, that there were certain sins that if you committed those after you were baptized, they would not be forgiven. So Constantine waited until he was an old man to be baptized after he was no longer, uh, so he like, had set aside uh, his duties as emperor and someone else had uh, assumed, and I can't remember who his predecessor or who his successor was, but he had already announced who his successor would be and, and had set aside government life. And so then he became baptized because he knew that as emperor, there's going to be some people that he might have to snuff, right? He's going to, there's going to be some people I might have to rub out. And so I'm going to hold off being baptized until I don't have to kill people anymore. Uh, so he was an interesting cat, to say the least, but he seemed to be, at least, uh, sincere in his faith in Jesus. Now, that's not to say he went about it in the best way, obviously, at times, um, but it, it changed the Roman Empire, and it changed... Um, the, the fate of the church. I mean, we're, we're coming out of a season where there have been a succession of um, persecution toward Christians. 
And now that's all going to change. In fact, uh, overnight, this turn of events changed Christianity uh, from an enemy of the state into an arm of the state. In fact, uh, Constantine, uh, he doesn't declare it. People always say that he declared it to be the state religion, uh, the official religion of Rome. He didn't do that, but he did make it a legal religion. Up to this point, it had been illegal to be a Christian, but Constantine makes it legal to be a Christian. And because he is a Christian, for all intents and purposes, it does become the official religion of the Roman Empire. In fact, Constantine, after he um, conquered, uh, after he officially became emperor, after he conquered his rival Maxentius and officially became the emperor, Uh, It was tradition for the emperor then to offer a sacrifice at the altar of this, the the God of Rome, this pagan God. Um, Constantine refused to offer sacrifice there. He was the first emperor in history to not offer sacrifice to the pagan gods after conquering uh, his enemies. And so there were some things, like I said, he seemed to be, um, he seemed to be, sincere in his faith. There seems to be a genuine, uh, a genuine conversion is something significant that happens in Constantine's life. So how, uh, how was this turn of events possible in the first place? Um, the century before Constantine had been a century of revolution in the Roman empire in just that 100 years, right? Just that century before Constantine, 30 emperors had risen and fallen in rapid succession. Um, The death of one emperor often led to a full-scale massacre of his closest relatives by his successor. It was a bloody, bloody business. Uh, And these kind of internal conflicts, um, these upheavals weakened Rome and they led to intermittent invasions uh, of the empire by uh, other you know, like barbaric tribes, the Germanic tribes from the north and other, you know. And so as the empire suffered, Christians often suffered as a convenient scapegoat for those problems. Um, persecution before the year 250 had been localized. There had been pockets of persecutions against Christians. But between the years 250 and 313, the the persecution of Christians was empire-wide. And so they had come out of a season um, of, of really desperate times for the church and for those who were followers of Jesus. In fact, in the in year 250, the Emperor Decius required everyone in the empire to obtain a certificate uh, proving that they had offered a sacrifice to the Roman gods. Uh, and so this that was a direct uh, way of exposing Christians uh, so that they, uh, you know. And so in 303, the year 303, this is 50 years after Decius' persecution, Diocletian rose to power. And by this point, the empire is in pretty rough shape. Um, Diocletian, though, uh, was a military genius, and he was able to kind of get things uh, under control, kind of whip the empire back into shape, so to so to speak. And and things began to turn around, and there was economic prosperity, and there was um, kind of this return to the Pax Romana, right to this Roman peace. And so uh, Diocletian, though, 
as he became more successful and as things started to turn around, he became really arrogant and he declared himself to be a living God. Uh, he also turned out, um, he also made what turned out to be the empire's last attempt to wipe out Christianity. So this was the, the great persecution is what this is known as. Uh, Christians were banned from the military. Copies of scripture were publicly burned. Church leaders were arrested in order to sacrifice to the Roman gods or be killed. And so after persecuting Christians for two years, Diocletian becomes sick. Um, and so he abdicated the throne. He retired to a seaside palace, um, I, actually in what is now modern day Croatia is where he retired to. Um, and he spent the rest of his life raising cabbage. Uh, and Galerius was the man who succeeded him, and he became emperor in 305. He continued this persecution for another six years, and then he got sick. Uh, there's a Christian writer during this time named Lactantius, and he said in the 18th year of his reign, God struck Galerius with an incurable disease. A malignant ulcer formed itself in the secret parts and spread by degree. Um, so it sounds like he got cancer. Uh, but then gangrene set in as his body rotted and he was eaten by maggots. How, what a way to die, right? Uh, apparently, as he lay dying, he developed a guilty conscience about the way he had treated Christians. And on his deathbed, he signed an edict granting religious toleration and asked Christians to pray for him. Um, uh, the, the same historian Lactantius uh, in, in his writings um, kind of exposed that his thoughts were that was a little too little too late. <laughs> and so Galerius died uh, about a week later. So, uh, so anyway, Diocletian had divided the empire into east and west. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Both had a senior leader in Augustus and a junior leader, which was the Caesar. In the West, after Constantine's uh, conquering uh, or defeating his rivals, uh, he became Caesar. Uh, well, actually, this is before he became Augustus. He was a, one of the Caesars. He ruled what is now Britain and France, which is why he was in York. Um, but he didn't want to just rule a part of the empire. He wanted it all. And so in October 312, he led his armies across the Alps into Rome and defeated Maxentius. Um, that was really risky. He had fewer soldiers. And as we mentioned before, he had a vision from heaven the day before. So Constantine's victory made him the sole emperor in the West. And a few months later, uh, in 313, he repaid his debt to Christ uh, by meeting with Easter, the Eastern emperor and issuing the Edict of Milan, which was a law that gave Christians the freedom to worship throughout the empire. And it was the first time in history that it had been legal right, and safe to worship Jesus publicly. So, um, we talked a little bit about whether Constantine's uh, conversion was sincere or not. Historians have argued that for a long time. Um, <laughs> most Christians, even in Constantine's own day, did not consider him to be a true believer. He had never submitted himself to any Christian bishop. He put off being baptized until just before his death. Um, he continued to serve, as all Roman emperors did, as high priest over the Roman pagan religion. Uh, he could be very ruthless. In fact, he had his own son put to death when he suspected him of plotting a coup d'etat against him. Uh, on the other hand, 
at times, at the time that Constantine embraced Christianity, there was a tremendous amount of, there wasn't, sorry, there was not a tremendous amount of political benefit in doing so. Only about 10% of the empire's population was a Christian at the time. Christianity was stronger in the eastern part of the empire than in the west where Constantine was. Uh, And since most Christians came from lower classes and Christians had been banned from the military, embracing Christ didn't give Constantine a lot of pull with the Roman army or with the Roman elite. So there really wasn't a, a, there really wasn't a, a real uh, advantage in him doing so. There wouldn't have been a lot of, uh, you know, and the word is escaping me, like um, when you have a reason for doing something, you have, yes, help me out. Uh, anyway, there wouldn't have been a lot of reason for him to do it. I'll just say it that way. How's that work? That, wor- that word works, right? There wouldn't have been a real lot of reason for him to do it. So as a result, it seems likely that Constantine at least had a sincere belief in Christ's power, even though it's possible um, that he may not have truly been repentant at that time. Whatever the state of his soul, though, Constantine went way beyond granting Christians freedom of worship. Number one, he restored the church's confiscated property, uh, which is a big deal, right? So when, when Christians would be arrested, all their property would be confiscated. The Roman government had, you know, taken things from them. Um, and Constantine restored their property. So like if they had homes that had been taken away, or maybe they had, you know, they wouldn't have had church buildings at this point, but, you know, anything that they might have had that had been confiscated, he gave back. Uh, He also gave the church lots of new property. So the church would have been able, this would have been when church buildings first started to arise, because they would have had the freedom to do so. So, hey, you know, uh, we're outgrowing John's living room, Constantine gave us this building down the street. Why don't we meet there? You know, it's like that. So um, he gave new property to the church. He exempted Christian ministers and churches from paying taxes. Uh, That's still a tradition, right? Uh, He exempted Christian ministers and churches from paying taxes, and he set apart Sunday as a day of rest and worship. Uh, Later in Constantine's reign, he also convened ecumenical councils, He assumed leadership over them himself, which is, you know, a little iffy. Uh, But he he did convene these councils to help the church settle major doctrinal disputes. Uh, And maybe the most significant thing that Constantine did, though, was this. He removed the idols of pagan gods from their temples and used them to decorate public parks in the new capital city he had built, Constantinople. This sent a powerful message to the public that old pagan gods were nothing more than decorations and deserved no honor. So he removed them from their places of honor and just made them statues in the park. Um, And so that was a real statement. This is a big thing in the empire. Um, Constantine's sons went even further than that. They went beyond favoring Christians and actually started punishing pagans. They passed laws that banned pagan sacrifices. In 381, the emperor Theodosius I completed the transition by making Christianity um, a religion that worshiped a Jewish peasant who had been murdered by the Roman government, right? That, uh, if you don't think about Christianity, that's, that's what it is, right? Uh, so he made, they, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So that did eventually happen, but it wasn't under Constantine. It happened in 381 under Theodosius I. 
and so in a single lifespan. So uh, 315 is when Constantine comes to power, 313, somewhere in that area. Uh, Constantine comes to power, and by 381, so less than 70 years later, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. All right? Uh, so that begs the question, and, his, and people have argued this over the course of history, was this transformation a good thing? Um, even at the time it was happening, even among Christians, there was a wide variety of, of opinions. Uh, for example, the historian Eusebius marveled at the fact that after 300 years, God had delivered his people. At the Nicene Council in 325, Eusebius wrote, many of the bishops in attendance were missing eyes or limbs that they had lost during Diocletian's persecution. And Constantine invited them to sit next to him on his royal couch as equals. And so uh, for Eusebius, this is a really good thing, right? Look at this. We've gone from, you know, started at the bottom, now we're here, right? That was kind of his attitude about this. Like, I can't believe we're sitting with the emperor. Uh, we've gone from having our eyes gouged out and missing limbs because we've, you know, to sitting at the table with the emperor. Eusebius, uh, he, that represented the opinion of a lot of Christians when he spoke of Constantine in these terms. He called him a new Moses. In Eusebius' view, God had chosen Constantine to inaugurate the final era of history uh, it, where the whole world would come to Christ. And so, since Constantine gave the, the church a position of influence, um, Christians, Christian beliefs impacted the empire in a noticeable way. Things started to really shift Women were given more dignity. Slaves were given better treatment. The gladiatorial games were eliminated altogether. Um, Constantine also outlawed uh, the killing of infants in 315 uh, and started to provide early forms of welfare in 321 so that fa poor families wouldn't have to sell their children. Uh, even in this time, uh, Christians were known for being opponents of abortion. Uh, and so that, that infanticide did, wasn't just a case of killing their babies after they were born. They would often kill them in the womb as well. And Christians were opponents of that. And so uh, if, um, you know, if you ever happen to be in a conversation where people may say that that's a fairly new view for Christians to have, it is absolutely not. It is, goes all the way back to the earliest days of church history um, because abortion is not a modern issue uh, and neither is the Christian understanding of the sanctity of life beginning in the womb. Um, so, uh, the church now served as the conscience of the empire and to the emperor himself. In 390, Theodosius discovered um, that after he massacred 7,000 of his political enemies in Thessalonica, an Italian bishop named Ambrose rebuked him publicly and refused to serve him communion. Um, he finally had to come to church, remove his imperial robes, and publicly repent of his sin. Uh, so now we see not only has the church um, been invited to the table, so to speak, and become uh, a 
a, a, a transformative force in the empire, it's now become a political force as well because a bishop actually had the power and the influence and the authority to, to force the emperor to come and repent right? This is a big deal. This is a, where the shift is happening. Um, and so uh, being a state church created a lot of new problems because when power starts to come into play, corruption starts to happen too. Uh, for one thing, Constantine knew that a united empire required a united church, so the Roman government increasingly involved itself in church affairs uh, this turned the church's internal doctrine disputes into political battles as well. Um, doesn't sound so different than modern times, does it? Uh, during the Arian controversy, so Arius was uh, a, a, a teacher who was eventually declared to be a heretic. Um, so uh, the Arius taught that Jesus was not uh, God that he was a created being, just the son of God. And so the state sided with Arius and with that heretical position for over a generation. And so as a result, for several decades, an officially Christian government persecuted Orthodox Christians for their belief that Jesus was God. Um, and so as the church became more powerful, um, the clergy developed into an aristocracy uh, they wore long flowing robes. They drew government paychecks. Bishops preached from throne-like pulpits in cathedrals that had been built at the state's expense. And so, uh, unsurprisingly, similar to, some, similar to what we see oftentimes with the prosperity gospel, uh, the gospel preached from these pulpits often did not sound like good news to the poor. And so instead, wealth and social status were seen as evidence of divine favor, and Christianity became seen as something that helps you uh, go to heaven after you die, rather than thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's these distorted views that begin to happen um, because of, um, well, wealth and power in the 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 upper hierarchy of the church. And so more and more Christians began to believe that it was no longer possible to pursue a life of true holiness within the church. Uh, many dissenters moved into the desert and became monks. Uh, these will eventually, and we'll talk about these guys in a little bit, um, maybe not this week, but we'll talk about these guys eventually. These, these folks became known as some of the desert fathers. And so there are some early writings from them that, have be, that became important uh, in, uh, in the Reformation and that became important in the, the growth and the transformation of the church as, as some of these um, corruption in the church becomes worse and worse and worse until it eventually reaches a tipping point. And so monasticism or this idea of separating yourself uh, from culture to, uh, to live a, a cloistered life, right? That began well before Constantine. Um, but this shift during Constantine's reign or really during his reign and, and following this, what we might call the Constantinian shift that we've just described, um, 
greatly accelerated the growth of monasticism. More and more Christians are separating themselves from the, what we might call the main body of the church or the official uh, body of the Roman Catholic Church, which it wasn't known as the Roman Catholic Church yet, but of the Roman Church, the Constantinian Church. The people began to separate themselves from the main body of that to go and to study in the desert to, and to become monks. Um, so by the fourth century... Nearly every great church leader had been a monk at one point or another, um, which kind of brings us to um, this movement that began to convert people in the West. Now, if you remember, I mentioned a few minutes ago that when Constantine comes into power, there really um, wasn't a lot of reason for him to convert. There wasn't a lot. Of, there wasn't a lot of political reason. There wasn't a. There there wasn't a lot of influence in it. Most Christians were poor, and there weren't a lot of Christians in the western part of the empire at that point anyway. So uh, he didn't really have, uh, you know, a lot of motivation to do that. And so, but what happens after this Constantinian shift? Um, is that these people who begin to separate themselves from the main body of the Roman church and live a life as monks began to make inroads into the western part of the empire and began to convert the barbarians, right? Um, not Conan the Barbarian. Uh, that's just what they were called. If you weren't Roman, you're barbarian. And so uh, the people who lived, the German tribes who lived in Europe at that time, right? In Germany, France, England, all of these. So, uh, so the Constantinian, we might call it an experiment of trying to use the church to save the Roman Empire was a failure. Uh, less than a century after Constantine's conversion, tribes from Germany, barbaric tribes from Germany began pushing against the borders of the empire. In 378, uh, the Visigoths defeated several Roman legions. They killed the Emperor Valens himself. Um, and so this kind of myth of Roman invincibility was shattered at that point. And so more and more, these, these barbaric tribes would began, continued to invade Roman territory. And at the end of the fourth century, Rome began to recognize its increasing weakness. They drew their troops back from the Rhine and the Danube rivers into defensive positions inside Italy. So basically they uh, abandoned uh, European conquest and you know, drew everybody back into Europe and said, or into Italy and said, let's just, let's defend the home front. So this move effectively uh, left most of Europe to the barbarians. And so then those Germanic tribes uh, overran and pillaged former Roman cities all over Europe and then began actually to push into Italy itself. And in 410, the Visigoths managed to actually sack the city of Rome. Uh, and then uh, just 40 years later, uh, roughly in 455, the Vandals sacked Rome again. And, uh, and then they began to put puppet leaders onto Caesar's old throne, but the Germans officially ended the Roman Empire in the West in 476. Now, what does all of that mean for us? Um, Christians at that time interpreted the fall of Rome as the will of God. God. They believed that God had allowed the barbarians to conquer Rome so that they 
in turn, the barbarians, might be conquered by the message of the gospel. And so uh, Christians at this time, because of the, the, um, the corruption under Constantine and, and the emperors that followed him in the church, because the corruption in the church as a, as a state-sanctioned and, uh, institution um, believed that God had brought these barbarians to conquer Rome, to purify the church, and so then, too, that the message of the gospel might be taken to those barbarians. Um, and so, um, a priest named Paulus Orosius, uh, who lived in modern-day Portugal, he said, let God's mercy be praised, even if this has taken place through our own destruction. Man, what a, what an, what a great outlook. What a, you know, uh, if, you know, uh, if Ohio invaded, invaded Pennsylvania, right, and took over, um, would we say this same kind of thing? Let God's mercy be praised, even if, even if this has taken place through our own destruction. Would we see that, and obviously that's really far-fetched, Ohio isn't going to invade Pennsylvania. But you see what I'm saying? Like if, if our homes were invaded, would, would we see that as an opportunity for the gospel to be advanced? That's exactly what Christians did at this time. So uh, the challenge, though, was how do we actually convert these barbarians? Um, so one of the things that helped, one of the advantages that the church had was that in spite of their military superiority, uh, the barbarians recognized that Roman civilization was superior to their own. So they recognized, even though they were militarily more powerful, they recognized that there were some things about Roman, uh, Roman culture and Roman civilization that they needed to adopt, that they needed to uh, learn from, right? The Roman, I mean, you know, Romans, Rome's road system uh, was a great advancement. The aqueducts and their ability to, to deliver water to their cities and their, you know, their, their laws. And the, the, I mean, they, you know, and so the barbarians recognize that, hey, we can adopt a lot of this and it will help advance our culture as well. And so since Christianity was Rome's religion, uh, convincing these barbarians to convert to Christianity wasn't as difficult as it might have been because they were open to Roman culture. Um, but it was a lot easier to baptize somebody than to disciple them. So teaching Christian doctrine and ethics, let alone the heritage uh, of classical civilization uh, to these people who were nomads emerging from centuries of illiteracy and extreme violence, right? So uh, it's not an easy task. And so, um, so evangelizing, discipling, and educating these Germanic tribes uh, was achieved by traveling merchants, by slaves, by exiles, by, uh, a lot of people whose names have been lost to history. Uh, but there are a few of those names that have been preserved, and they made some contributions. There's a man named Ulfilas. I think that's how you pronounce that. U-L-F-I-L-A-S, right? Euphilus, maybe, is how you say that. Uh, but he was the first missionary to the Goths. Um, he moved to what is now modern-day Germany in around 375. Um, he invented a writing system for these people. Uh, who were illiterate, so he like created a written language for them. 
He translated the Bible, except for the book of Kings, which he thought was too uh, violent and warlike for people who loved war, so he didn't translate that book for them. Uh, But he translated the Bible into their language, uh, and then later missionaries built on his work uh, and converted the Goths to Trinitarian Orthodoxy. Um, The Franks, who inhabited what is now France, became uh, Christians largely through the efforts of their Christian queen. They had a queen named Clotilda. What a terrible name to have. Uh, But that was her name, Clotilda. Um, And she became a Christian, and she began to convert her people. She persistently uh, shared the gospel with her husband, King Clovis, until he became a convert. And then in 496, after years of rejecting Christianity, Clovis... um, similar to Constantine when he found himself outnumbered on the battlefield, found himself crying out to Clotilda's God. And he promised Christ that if he would give him victory, he would convert. Clovis won the battle and he kept his word. Uh, On his orders, the entire Frankish people underwent a mass conversion and were baptized by the thousands. Now, it's probably unlikely that most of them, that their hearts and minds had been transformed at that point. I mean, how many of them even had heard the gospel? We don't know, Uh, but they got baptized uh, because their king said so. but what that did do at that point then was open the door for missionaries to begin to teach them the, the truth about Christ and to begin to disciple. And, uh, and in, many, in time, many of those folks actually did become sincere followers of Jesus. Um, of all of the missionaries of that time, the most famous is a guy named Patrick Uh, who we now celebrate as the patron saint of Ireland, right? Um, St. Patrick's Day has become a celebration of Irish heritage, but Patrick actually wasn't Irish. I don't know if you knew that. St. Patrick was not Irish. He was, in fact, British. Um, In the mid-5th century, when he was 16 years old, uh, Irish slave traders kidnapped him. Uh, from his home in Britain and sold him into slavery in Ireland. So he became a slave in Ireland. Um, Patrick's father had been a Christian. Patrick was not a Christian. He had actually scoffed at his father's faith. But after becoming a slave, he underwent a profound transformation uh, and conversion. And he later actually wrote in his autobiography, the Lord opened to me the sense of my unbelief and consoled me as a father would a son. And so it was while he was uh, a slave in Ireland that uh, he gave his heart to Christ. Um, So he had been a slave for six years and he dreamed uh, that he saw a ship waiting for him on the coast. When he woke up, he actually managed to, to escape from his master's farm. He walked 200 miles to the coast of Ireland uh, and with some difficulty talked the ship's captain into taking him back to Britain where he was eventually reunited with his family. Now, if Patrick's story ended there, we would not be talking about him today. Um, He probably would have spent the rest of his life in his home country, but he had another dream several years later. Uh, In this dream, he saw a man handing him a letter titled The Voice of the Irish. As he read it, he heard the voices of Irish people pleading with him to walk once more among them and deeply moved. He wrote in his autobiography, I could read no more. 
So even in his dream, he couldn't read the whole letter because he was so moved by the voice of God and the voices of these Irish people that he heard that were calling to him. Um, he was pretty self-conscious, though, because he wasn't very educated, so he moved to France uh, to study and to prepare. Uh, and then he, moved back, then he moved back to Ireland eventually. Um, he spent the rest of his life there preaching the gospel, uh, working miracles, by his own account, he raised people from the dead uh, and founding a large network of monasteries to train Christian converts in the faith. So today, we know him primarily through his autobiography called The Confession. Um, in that autobiography, he focuses almost exclusively on his enslavement, conversion, and call to ministry. Um, but we don't know a lot about his actual ministry. He doesn't talk a lot about that. Uh, there are legends that have risen, like they say, you know, he drove all the snakes out of, out of Ireland. Um, newsflash, there never were snakes in Ireland, just that's legend. Um, anyway, um, so, but all that to say, he was one of the, the great missionaries of this time that helped to convert barbarians uh, and people in, in Europe uh, where there weren't a lot of Christians at this time. Uh, there is some other possible historic information we have about Patrick's life. Uh, there, have, there are some hymns that have been attributed to him. Uh, he allegedly prayed the words of, such, of one such hymn. Uh, this hymn is called St. Patrick's Breastplate. Uh, he prayed this. It is said, at least, that he prayed this every day for spiritual protection. Uh, this is that prayer. He said, I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of of the Trinity through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. And I think that's such an incredible uh, heart to have. Like, you know, his prayer that Christ would be before him and behind him and to his left and to his right and above him and below him and everywhere. And then to think, so that Lord, pray that every person who thinks of me would, would think of Christ, that every mouth that speaks of me would think of Christ, that every person that sees me would see Jesus, that everyone who hears me speak would hear the voice of Jesus. Man, I love, I love that. What an incredible, incredible testimony. So, um, that's kind of what's happening, and that's how Christianity starts to move into Europe uh, and really make some inroads there. Uh, and uh, along with that, as we mentioned, this guy Arius uh, and the Arian controversy. So this also, alongside this movement of the gospel into Europe, is a really big deal in the church at this time. And so... 
These questions were being wrestled with. Who is God? How can he be three and still be one? Who is Jesus and how can he be both God and man? And who is man? Is he a sinner by nature or by choice? And so this era in the church history um, saw the church began to assemble and have these uh, meetings, right? To hammer out careful answers to all of these fundamental questions. And so there were these councils and the bishops of the church formulated the greatest creeds in church history. And so this is in, right, in the 400s at this point, AD. And maybe you're wondering why it took the church so long to begin to answer these kinds of fundamental questions. Why did this era of creeds and councils come so late in church history? And there are two reasons for this. And I'm gonna give them to you now. Uh, Number one, In previous centuries, so up to this point, the church has been a pretty small group, a small body preoccupied mostly with survival. When you're being persecuted, uh, you're really not taking the time to call, you know, uh, a meeting of the board, so to speak. You're just running for your life. And so they are preoccupied with survival. Persecution had limited the church numbers. It forced it to present a unified doctrinal front. So um, when, when you're under persecution, you kind of all, you know, it's, it's similar to like after 9-11 when it felt like we were all on the same page. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, the church under persecution was very much the same way, right? They weren't arguing about these kind of minutia of doctrine. It was like, hey, we all believe in Jesus. Let's take care of each other. And so they had a united doctrinal front through that era of persecution. But once persecution stopped and Christianity became a favored religion, a whole lot more people joined the church. There was a lot more liberty and a lot more opportunity, really, even at that point, for theological disagreement and discussion and discourse and, you know, you got time to sit down with your friends over a meal and talk about the finer points of, you know, what you believe about Jesus and what do you think this scripture really means? And so those things, that, there just was time to do it, right? And then number two, Constantine's decision to make Christianity the, the official religion of the Roman Empire uh, meant that for the first time, the church's doctrinal disagreements had political consequences. Up to this point, if there had been a political disagreement, like if you read Paul's letters, he says, hey, you know, if, if, if you go through this process and they still won't repent, then you put them out of the church. Like they, they, they don't get to fellowship with you anymore. And so that's how, you know, church discipline was just handled in the church. But once it becomes a, a political issue, that changes things. A unified empire had to have a unified body of dogma. And as a result, Constantine called universal councils of bishops and he presided over them in an attempt to put all the churches on the same page. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? We need to have unity. We need to have agreement. And it was from these councils that what we know as Orthodox Christianity, not, 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 it's not when it came into being, but it's when it found its doctrinal expression. It's when they solidified what the church had already believed up to this point, right? That these are the things, the teachings that had already been spreading in the churches. This was the doctrine that had been handed down from the apostles and through the bishops. And so what this does is just codifies it. 
He says, this is the official thing. And so if there is disagreement, we can appeal to these documents, to these creeds, to these statements to say, no, this is the, this is orthodoxy. This is, this is our practice. This is our faith. And so then it's easier to identify those who are in disagreement and to either bring them into agreement, right, under church discipline and say, hey, you know, what, you, get, you need to renounce this false teaching or for them to be declared heretics and on the outside. Uh, and so there were three major issues during this era. And this is really the important part that we need to get to because, yeah, three major issues. The first had to do with the nature of God. So this is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, how, does, how does that work, right? The second had to do with the nature of Christ, and this would be the relationship between his human and divine natures. Uh, I mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. There's this fancy word called the hypostatic union uh, that describes the, how God, Jesus can be fully God and fully man at the same time. That was, but that was a big deal. That was, I mean, it still is, right? We still wrestle with that concept. The third uh, issue had to do with the nature of man. And that was a question of whether man is a sinner by nature or a sinner by choice. So that brings us to the Arian controversy. How can Jesus be both God and God's son? In 318, controversy broke out in Alexandria, Egypt, um, when Arius um, publicly rebuked his bishop, Alexander. So Alexander of Alexandria. That makes it a little easy to remember. Um, so... Arius rebukes Alexander for preaching a sermon on the Trinity. Arius criticized the Trinity as polytheism. Christ was not God, he said, but God's first and highest creation. So the logical implications of his teaching was that it was idolatry to worship Jesus. So Arius' teachings were condemned as heretical and Arius was kicked out of the church. But that controversy didn't just go away. Arius took his argument directly to the people. He was a pretty effective speaker and marketer, and he summed up his theology with a slogan. He wrote a song, actually. They used to sing this in the streets. There was a time when he was not. And he said it to a little catchy jingle, and it got stuck in people's heads all over Egypt. Um, so when he said he, he was referring to Christ. So people would go around singing this. There was a time when he was not. Uh, and so... Arianism was easy to understand, so it caught on quickly. Um, there was one historian, an observer during that time, who said that the church was so divided over the issue that bishops were fighting each other like swarms of gnats in the air. So this became a big deal. It also led to the Council of Nicaea. All right. So Constantine, who believed that division within the church is worse than war, that's a direct quote from Constantine, division within the church is worse than war. Uh, he quickly realized that he had to get this situation under control. Oh, by the way, um, uh, the, uh, the Orthodox Christians, uh, in order to counteract Arius's little jingle, came up with a jingle of their own, which was, there, there was not a time when he was not. Uh, it wasn't too creative, um, but it worked. Uh, so anyway, uh, so Constantine uh, said, we got to get this situation under control. He wrote a letter to Arius, and he wrote a letter to Alexander, and encouraged them to work out their differences. That didn't work. 
And so he called this Spanish bishop, I say called, there was no phones back then, uh, but he appointed a Spanish bishop to travel to Egypt and try to mediate the dispute, but he wasn't able to, to do that. And so as a last resort, so this is an interesting thing, the Council of Nicaea actually was a last resort. Constantine convened a council of bishops in the city of Nicaea. Uh, in case you're wondering, Nicaea is actually in modern-day Turkey. Um, and this was in the summer of 325 A.D. And Constantine himself personally presided over the council, and he paid the expenses of all the attendees. So he felt like that this issue was a big enough deal. As I said, he said, division within the church is worse than war. So he felt like this is a big enough deal. Not only am I going to call all of these guys to come, I'm going to foot the bill. We've got to get this problem resolved. We've got to fix this. So once the council was underway, the two sides laid out their cases. Arius argued that if the father had begotten the son, then it followed that the son was not an eternal being. If the son had a beginning, then there was a time when the son did not exist. Thus, he was of a different substance than the father. That was Arius's argument. And he said that while we should admire and emulate Jesus on account of his obedience to the father, we should not worship him. He said, Jesus is divine, but he is not deity. So his main opponent in the debate was another bishop from Alexandria. His name was Athanasius. Uh, he was nicknamed uh, the Black Dwarf because he was short and because he was dark. It's kind of a rude nickname, but that's what he was known as. Uh, so it was a different time, folks. Uh, so Athanasius was Arius's main opponent uh, in this debate. And Athanasius was a very... Uh, very intelligent man uh, and a, 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 an astute scholar. And he argued that Arius' doctrine not only denies Christ the worship he is due, but it also destroys the doctrine of salvation. He argued that only a savior who was fully human could die for human sin, but only one who was fully God could unite human beings with the Father, with God. So in Christ, the immortal had become mortal to raise mortals to immortality. Athanasius said this, he said, those who maintained that there was a time when the son was not robbed God of his word like plunderers. Um, so most of the bishops at the council sided with Athanasius. And so then the original Nicene Creed of 325 that the council wrote specifies that Jesus is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, and clarifies that Jesus is begotten, not made. Uh, and so that put an end to that controversy. It declared an official doctrine about who Jesus was and the nature of Christ. And the creed ends by pronouncing an anathema upon those who reject it and a warning that any bishop who refuses to sign it will be deposed in addition to this, Constantine added a civil penalty warning that any bishop who was deposed would also be banished from his city. Uh, so if, if you were bold enough to disagree with the council, you were going to pay some consequences, um, which, you know, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe there's some guys who signed who did or did not agree, but uh, they were compelled to do so, uh, which may not be the best way to get agreement. But the doctrine that came out of the Council of Nicaea 
uh, was 100% in agreement with God's word, right? Um, over and over in scripture, John, in fact, in, in his gospel, in the opening of the gospel, talking about Jesus as the logos, as the word, said in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so scripture itself declares Jesus to be fully God and fully man. And so this doctrine that comes, this uh, this um, creed that comes out of the Council of Nicaea really only affirms what's already being taught by Scripture, uh, but it puts to bed uh, this controversy with Arius. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.